Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Pastor Jason is actually uh, under the weather this week, so I got a call yesterday. We had a, a last-minute kind of lineup change, so we'll see what four hours of uh, sermon prep does for us this morning. <laughs> But I think, I think we'll get through it. Um, we were reminded earlier this morning, God's word is powerful, right? It goes out. It doesn't return void. It accomplishes exactly the purposes God intends for it. So we're going to let the Holy Spirit and the word of God work this morning. So uh, we're going to be actually in uh, John chapter 6. I thought we'd go to something familiar this morning, a, a passage I think you probably all read or are familiar with on some level. John 6 actually relates the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Okay, this is the story where he takes five barley loaves and two fish and multiplies the food to feed a a massive crowd. And before we get into the the text this morning, I want to ask you to reflect on, on a question something that we're going to come back to through the, through the sermon. And that question is this, what do you hunger for? What do you hunger for? That's going to kind of be our mantra this morning. What do you hunger for? Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I need to pause for a second. I'm going to go off on a tangent. I just used a word that I'd like to take back. I didn't mean to use the term mantra. Okay, that word has a lot of baggage with it, all right? Um, A mantra is a concept that comes from Eastern pantheistic, non-dualistic philosophy, okay? Buddhism, both Theravada, Mahayana Buddhism, and Hinduism. The idea behind a mantra is to empty one's mind of all thought for the purpose of attaining a state of enlightenment. That's not what we're doing this morning, okay? We don't do mantras here at Bergen Park Church. We are called by God to fill our minds, okay? Not to empty them, to fill them with his word, to fill our heart with his spirit, okay? We read in Romans 12, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4, be built up in faith and in knowledge of the Son of God so that you might attain maturity in the faith. So that's what we're gonna do, okay? So forget the word mantra, um, sorry about that. We're going to come back to this phrase through, through the sermon. What do you hunger for? That's, that's my point. What do you hunger for in life? Now, as we think about hunger, you know, I got to say food is an important topic in my house. Okay, I've got four children between the ages of 12 and 16 years old. All we think about is what we're eating and where our next meal is coming from, Okay. If you've got teenagers, you know how that is. My boys and I eat like ravening beasts at times. We're still trying to work on the balance between brutality and sophistication at the dinner table. But food is an important thing. Our family even likes to reminisce sometimes about the foods we enjoyed when we were living overseas over in France. You know, the baguettes and the the fromage, the cheese that we can't get here in the States those escargot pizzas we would get from time to time. They're not as bad as you'd think. (laughs) Cuisse de canard à la poire. 
wonderful food, delicacies, right? We, we, we spend time thinking about food. And when it comes to food, we all know what we like. We know what we don't like. When it comes to food, we know what we hunger for. But again, my question for you this morning is spiritually, what do you hunger for? Spiritually, what do you hunger for? What do you hunger for in life? Do we hunger for God? Do we hunger for righteousness? Do we hunger for wisdom, for grace, for love? Do we hunger for the eternal presence of God? So as we read John chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 through 15, I'm not going to focus so much on the miracle itself. What I want to do is help us situate this passage in the larger context of John's gospel, in the context of his uh, bread of life discourse that Jesus gives in in this book. See, what I want to help you understand is that the crowds were hungry, but their hunger was really misplaced. They didn't recognize that they were hungry for the bread of life, for Jesus himself. And I wonder, are we any different? What do we truly hunger for? So let's go ahead and read John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, again, we were grateful to be gathered this morning in your presence to worship you through song and through word. Lord, your word goes out. It penetrates our hearts and our minds. It transforms us. We invite that willingly this morning, Lord. Would you speak to us through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, since this is a narrative text, a narrative uh, text, it can be outlined actually fairly easily according to 
the chronology with which the events take place in, in the narrative. So what I'd like to do briefly before we get into some, some more depth on the, on the text is just walk through kind of the main events here, what's happening in this passage in verses 1 through 15. So if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to keep those, those Bibles open. We'll take a look here at what's going on in the text. Now, in verses 1 through 3, what's important here is that Jesus is in Galilee, Okay, Galilee was a region north of Jerusalem. This is the northern extremity of Israel. Okay, there's a large lake there known as the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. And this is where Jesus was kind of headquartered in his ministry. He, he grew up in Galilee, Nazareth, Capernaum was his headquarters. So this is where Jesus did much of his ministry, which explains why Jesus has attracted such a significant crowd. The people were familiar with him and his miracles. They knew who he was. So that's what we see happening in verses 1 through 3. Jesus is in Galilee. The crowd has assembled. Now, verses 4 through 9, here's where we see that the people are hungry and without food. Now, this is interesting because it's the the week of the Passover. This was a feast, a, a celebration, yet the people have gone out to see Jesus. They've forgotten their physical hunger for some time. They've, they've gone, they've been attracted to this person, Jesus Christ. They've gone out to see him, and now it occurs to everyone, we're, we're out here in the middle of nowhere, and we, ha- we have no food. Okay, so that's what's happening in verses 4 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 13, Jesus responds by by feeding them. The multiplication of five loaves and two fish. Finally, in verses 14 and 15, we see a renewed hunger in the people. So this time, their zeal is stirred and they want to make Jesus their king. They recognize him as an important prophet. And so they want to come and make him king by force. Okay, so that's kind of a general outline here of of the passage. So just so you know, John's purpose in writing his gospel account is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. John says this in chapter 20, verse 31. He tells us exactly why he has written this account of the life of Jesus, that you would believe and by believing have life. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who believe in their heart, are saved. So there are a number of things in this passage that are really only going to make sense in light of John's overall purpose, and a number of things that only make sense in light of this bread of life discourse that Jesus gives us in the, the, the passage later on. So the story uh, partly resolves when Jesus says that I myself am the bread of life, but it fully resolves at the cross where his body, the bread of life, is broken on behalf of the people. This is about the gospel. This points us to the saving, atoning work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Now, interestingly, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle besides the resurrection that appears in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's some significance here to the story. Now, the difference is in how the account is used in the plot of John. The same story can be told from different perspectives with an accent on different details for the purpose of achieving a different pedagogical goal. So what is John up to here? What does he want us to know? Again, he wants us to know that Jesus himself is the bread. 
So this is not just an interesting story about a miracle that Jesus performs. This is a story about how the Messiah, the Savior, will come and deliver his people and bring life to them. He wants to offer us the bread of life. That is his sacrificial death at the cross. So the question again is, what do we hunger for? What do we hunger for in life? So let's dig in a little bit more. I want to take you through three particular points. For those of you taking notes, I've got three things I'd like to look at in this text. And the first thing we observe is that the people followed Jesus because in a way they were hungry for the miracles that Jesus had to offer. They were hungry for healing. They were drawn to his ability to provide for them. Now we're told that a large crowd is following Jesus, about 5,000 now, the, the, the exact number is difficult. Some believe that you know, it's 5,000 men, which means that there may have been women and children involved. I don't know that the details are really that important. The, the point is there's a vast crowd following Jesus at this point. And I imagine that the crowd has grown bigger and bigger as Jesus has walked through the countryside. More and more people are drawn to him. They hear that he's coming. The sick and the needy are rushing out to meet him. Others may be coming simply just to see, is this guy for real? Are the rumors true? Can he truly perform miracles? See, crowds draw bigger crowds. We know how this works. When you see a crowd, how often do we slow down and maybe just take a look? We want to get close. We want to see what's going on. I mean, imagine you hear rumors of some wonderful thing happening around Evergreen. The bank is giving away $100 bills to anybody who, who, who shows up? What's going to happen? People are going to be drawn. More people are going to be drawn when they see those people drawn. We want to find out what's going on. Or imagine that the gas station is giving away free fuel in a time like this with, with gas prices the way they are. You can imagine people flocking to the gas station as you see those cars pulling in. More cars pull in. Everyone's drawn to the crowd. And that's exactly what's happened. Ultimately, we see that that these people are hungry, hungry for connection, hungry for love, hungry for for teaching, for care, for healing that Jesus offers them. What they still don't fully grasp is that Jesus has not come to merely heal the sick and restore justice, as the prophets had announced, but he's also come to heal the fallen human condition, to repair their broken relationship with God. God. See, John 6 shows us a people who know that Jesus is important, but they don't understand just how important he really is. Now, we can easily make the same mistake. We do it all the time. It's easy to look at Jesus as a prophet, as a wise teacher, a guru, a wandering first century ethicist who taught people morals, that sort of stuff, a folk hero, right? But do we see him as savior of our souls, as the one who heals us from sin and the consequences of sin? If we are hungry for healing from sin and estrangement from God, Jesus is the answer. So what do we hunger for? Now the next thing I would ask you to note in this passage is that the people in this story are also hungry for freedom. Now, you might be thinking as you look at this passage, where do we see hunger for freedom in the text? And I would point you to verse 4 and verse 15. 
I think the most overlooked verse in this text, but one of the most important verses here is verse four, which simply reminds us that the Passover feast was approaching. Now, that's, that's important. The Passover feast was approaching. The reason this is important is that in this context, Passover reminds us of God's provision of freedom for his people, freedom from bondage in the land of Egypt. Remember the story that the Jews had been in captivity for 400 years in the land of Egypt before God raised up a deliverer, Moses and Aaron, to lead the people out into the promised land? This, this explains to us why the people were so filled with nationalistic zeal to make Jesus their king. You have to understand the mentality of the people at the time. What's going on in the Jewish mindset in the first century under Roman occupation when they see a guy coming into town and doing miracles, multiplying bread? This is pointing the people back to their history, to Moses, to deliverance from Egypt. So you know the story, these 10 plagues that were, were delivered upon the people of Egypt by God to judge them for their wickedness. And the final plague, the angel of death, the idea was that the, the, the households of the Jewish people, they, they, would, they would slaughter a lamb, the Passover lamb, and place the blood over the doorpost, the frame of the house, so that the destroying angel, the angel of death, would, would see the blood and pass over. The price had been paid. He would pass over to the next house and take the life of the firstborn of that house. So for more on the Passover, I would encourage you, we're not going to delve into that deeply today, but I would encourage you, go to Exodus chapter 12 sometime this week. Read the account of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Or if you're like me and you enjoy bone-crushing guitar riffs and thundering drums, I would suggest go to Metallica and listen to their Creeping Death. That will lay out the whole story as well, uh, pretty accurately. So you've got some options here. Actually, no, I'd encourage you, go, go to the Word. Go to, go, to, go to Exodus 12, okay? So anyway, Passover was the Jewish national holiday, and this is important. This was bigger for them than, than 4th of July is for us. It meant freedom, and it also meant the beginning of the wandering of the people in the desert, and this is where we see God provide manna for his people. Okay, there's the connection with the bread. God provided bread from heaven every morning. The Jews would go out and gather up this bread, and they would be sustained for 40 years in the desert. So here, uh, the Passover is at hand, Jesus is multiplying bread, and the natural line of thinking among the people is that Jesus is going to lead them out of Roman captivity, he's going to deliver the people, he's going to provide food from heaven every day, and so the people are f going to follow him around, wanting to make him king. And later on, actually in verse 26, if you continue to read uh, this chapter, Jesus confronts the people about this. He says, you're only here because you want more bread. You're only following me because I provided bread. You're missing the point. See, the people were hungry for political freedom. They failed to recognize that Jesus brings freedom from sin. Jesus sets us free from death, the consequences of sin. Galatians 5 reminds us that in Christ, by faith, by faith, by the grace of God, we are free from the slavery of sin and the law. We are free so that we might be bound to Christ as his servants bound to Christ as his, his disciples. So the multiplication of bread is a foretaste of Jesus giving himself as the bread of life. 
Okay, he supplies physical response to physical need, and in doing so, he kind of stirs the appetite of the people. They've had a taste of what he can do, and now they want more. It's kind of like going to Costco. You try those samples. The idea is to entice you to buy, buy the product. You, you, you want more, right? But again, the question we need to ask, what, what do we hunger for? Do we hunger for the right thing? So the people are hungry for healing, hungry for freedom, and finally, they're hungry for a savior. Jesus is thought to be a prophet, as I mentioned before. He's going to reproduce this miracle of Moses. He's thought to be the king, the one who would lead them out of slavery. So see, the people want a savior, but they don't always want saving from the right things. Think about that. We like our sin, don't we? We love our sin. We hate it and we love it. It's an it's a, it's a odd relationship we have with our sin. We despise it. We feel shame and we feel guilt over it, and yet we, we're drawn back to the same sin, the same thing over and over again. See, our zeal can sometimes be misdirected. Or worse, as in this case, our explanations can be underdeveloped. See, the people wanted bread. They failed to see that Jesus is the bread of life. They wanted a king. They failed to see that Jesus is the king of kings. They wanted a savior, but they failed to accept the kind of savior who would actually ask them to repent of their sin, to take up their cross, and to follow him in obedience. That's the hard part. Is that the kind of savior we want? See, they failed to fully see who Jesus was and what Jesus could offer. You see, spiritually, we often sell ourselves short in the, in the same way. We sell ourselves short, we settle for the cheap knockoff, we settle for the lesser over the greater. Think of it this way. If you've ever been to a tourist destination, you will notice a significant number of people don't actually ever look at the object they're there to see. They're looking through a camera the whole time, a video recorder. They're taking a selfie. That's what they do. That's what we do. Now, Sometimes we're so intent on capturing the right photo, we actually fail to appreciate the object we're, we're photographing. Have you ever been in that, that circumstance before? This really hit me a few years ago. My family was in Italy, actually. We were on our way to Slovenia from Lyon, where we lived, for a conference, and we decided we're going to take some time in Italy and see a few things. So we drove down to Pisa with our kids to see the, the Leaning Tower, the famous tower. You've, you've probably seen pictures of it or maybe visited it yourself. And I was amazed, overcome with this. I, I noticed for the first time, nobody was actually looking at the tower. They were all faced away from it with their phones trying to snap a selfie. And in that moment, I think Amy and I simultaneously turned to each other and vowed that we would never take a photo of anything ever again. <laughs> and we've been honestly pretty good about it. It helps that our phones are really cheap and have terrible cameras, so we're not really tempted to take photos of things, but you, you see the point here, right? How easily we can become distracted by, say, the benefits of Jesus or the benefits of the church, and we fail to actually enjoy Jesus for who he is. We're simply pausing for a selfie with Jesus rather than enjoying who our Savior really is. Do we come to Jesus for a few small barley loaves? and fail to actually see the bread of life. So what do we hunger for? What's feeding us? How are you being fed 
Where are you going for spiritual sustenance? Think about that a little bit. See, we all have spiritual hunger, but we usually try to satisfy that hunger with the wrong kinds of things. We all do it. We all do it. Social media. That's where we go. Entertainment. Sex. Alcohol. Social projects. Good things. Charity. Religious devotion. But these things aren't Jesus. They're not God. See, we hunger for recognition. How many of us strive to be recognized, acknowledged by our peers, by those around us for our our abilities? We hunger for power. How many of us pursue this life of power, vying for position in life? We hunger sometimes for vengeance, for, for a lot of things. But we need to be willing to ask ourselves if the things on which we are feeding are truly going to satisfy us. Are we feeding on garbage? Are we feeding on the bread of life? Are we humbly approaching the one who can actually save us from our sin? Are we confessing our sin? Are we seeking God through his word and through prayer? Do we love our king? You see, the things on which you feed, these things in life will indicate what you're truly hungry for. Where do you spend your time? What do you spend your time thinking about, doing? That's the stuff that indicates where we are spiritually. So again, my question today, I'll leave you with this and ask that you ponder this maybe a little bit this week. What do you truly hunger for? What do you truly hunger for? And as we transition now into our time of communion, I want to assure you that the communion bread and wine is the most important meal you will eat this week, okay? I don't know what you had for breakfast this morning. Maybe you ate well, maybe you didn't. This meal, communion, is the most important meal you're going to eat this week. The presence of God is here in communion feeding us. It nourishes us. It builds us up in his love, in his grace. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now, if you guys have not yet picked up uh, communion elements, I want to invite you. There is a table here in the back of the sanctuary, or you can come forward and, and... grab some elements here. Remember, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Now, communion is not the bread of life. Communion is not going to save you, okay? But it does do something very important. It points us to the reality of the true bread, Jesus Christ. It reminds us of what Jesus did for us at the cross where he laid down his life on our behalf that by faith in him we might have eternal life. So I want to ask us to ponder that truth. Let's take a moment and just pause and say is, to ourselves, ask, ask yourself, is there anything you hunger for more than Jesus Christ? Ask God to turn your appetite to him, to turn your heart to him.